Father God, we have come here to hear from you. And we pray that all distractions would be set aside right now as we get into the word of God and we get the word of God deep into us. Thank you that your word is alive and thank you that it changes our hearts. From one degree of glory to another, you're changing us by the word, by the spirit. And we're just grateful to be your people. We're grateful to be a people of your own possession. We're grateful for what we have now and what we will have in the future. Because what we have ahead of us, Lord, is way beyond what we could even compare it to. The, the temporary things that challenge us are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is coming. So may that hearten us. I know some folks that are here are dealing with some losses and some difficulties that they've been going through, and I just pray that you'd lighten their hearts, encourage them with songs of thanksgiving, with um, a new work of grace in their hearts, Lord. That's my prayer, that you do a new work of grace in all of our hearts, that these holidays would be very special to us, times of true thanksgiving, times of true reflection on Christ, uh, the Savior, God in human flesh, coming into the world to save us, to save me. I want to lay this time at your feet, Lord, and pray that you would speak. Your servants are listening, so give us ears to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Now, last time we were together, uh, Jesus was hit with three. I'm getting buffeted by a fly up here. Messenger of Satan, come to buffet me. Anyway, uh, we, we saw Jesus was confronted with three questions from different groups. The first question came from a group of Pharisees with the Herodians, and they asked Jesus the question about taxes. Should we pay the poll tax or not? And Jesus said, show me the money, show me the coin. And the coin had an image of Caesar on it. And Jesus, in that classic response, said, then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And what belongs to God is everything. You have been imprinted with what's called the Imago Dei in Latin, the image of God. And since you bear his image, everything belongs to him. And the music plays. It's beautiful. Anyway, <laughs> And so everything belongs to God, and that's you and me. He wants all of us. He wants all of our heart. The next group came up. They were the Sadducees, and they thought they had the question of the day, and they told this story about this guy, and he married a lady, and he died before there could be offspring. So the law of the land was the Leveret law, and seven brothers married the same woman. They all died before there was offspring. And if you were uh, brother number three, you'd be definitely checking your oatmeal. We talked about that last time. See, uh, what does she put in stuff that everybody's dying all around her? And they said, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And we kind of gave the funny illustration that if I saw her in the resurrection, I'd be running away from her, not to her. But anyway, Jesus said, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels, not angels, but like them, in that we will uh, see God face to face, we will commune with him, we will carry out his will, and he corrected them, and off they went with the tail, their tail between their legs, and then a lawyer came, that is an expert in the law, and he said, Lord, what is the foremost commandment of the law? And Jesus went back, and he reached back into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall worship the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second is like it. After he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when we concluded last Sunday's message, we talked about the fact that what Jesus was actually saying there is that we are to hold nothing back. We are not to hold back our hearts from God, from loving him with everything that we are. We are not to hold back from loving our neighbor as ourselves. but so many of us hold back love. Why do we do that? Some of us have been hurt. Some of us just distrust. Some of us are just embarrassed to express love. Some of us, you know, you, you may not even have, have had a hug for a while. Maybe, you know, it's just hard for you to deal with something. Some of you have challenges in your past where it makes it hard for you to open your heart. And I think God would ask you to open your heart again if that's you. And Jesus gave this tremendous answer. 
And the, the lawyer, the, the expert in the law was pleased and he said, it's true, the Lord is one Lord and to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, this is it. And Jesus said to that man, you are not far from the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever heard the old statement, so close but yet so far? I don't know really what that means. I don't know if that means that the guy was on the cusp of believing. I don't know you know, what the full implications of that are, but there are people who are not far, but they haven't come in. What I want to talk to you about this morning is really a work of the heart that God wants to do in your life. God wants to work in your heart. Now, there are a couple of words I want to throw out at the beginning, and this, is, this message is called the heart of Christ. And there's a Greek and a Hebrew word I'm going to give you for the word heart. The word heart in Greek is cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A. You've all heard that before in English. We talk about cardiac arrest. Hopefully, I, I said that at first service and someone had recently gone through that and he was like, man, right once you opened that message, I knew you were talking to me, Pastor Michael. Anyway, hopefully that doesn't apply to you. But um, we talk about that whole study of cardiology. But the Hebrew word for heart is an interesting word. It's called leb or lab, and it's spelled in English L-E-V, like lev, or L-E-B, leb. It's actually pronounced lab. So if you want the phonetic pronunciation, you would spell it L-A-B-E, lab. In the Hebrew language, the word heart is just two simple letters. It's a lamed, and in the ancient picture language, it looks like a shepherd's staff. And if you look at the idea of a shepherd's staff, it speaks of control, lamed, and the second letter, going from right to left, is a bait, and it's found in the ancient language. It looks like a house. And here's the word, very simply. This is kind of how the Hebrew language works. A staff, speaking of control, and a house. And your heart is what controls the house or what controls you. The, in Hebrew and Greek thought, the heart is the center of you. It's the center of your mind, your intellect, your will, your emotions. It is what you are about. It is you, truly you is your heart. It is what controls everything. That's the word for heart in Hebrew. What controls the house? And here's my question for you at the beginning of this message is, who or what controls your heart? I'm not talking about your pumping organ in the middle of your chest, as glorious as a creation as that is. I'm talking about the spiritual you now. I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about what really makes up you. In the scriptures, there's at least three times in the New Testament where the inner man is brought up. In Romans 7.22, Paul says, In the inner man, I rejoice in the law. I love it. But I find another law in the members of my flesh or my body. There's a war going on. I delight in the law of the Lord in my heart, but I find another principle going on, right? The flesh warring against the spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, My outer man is decaying, but my inner man is being renewed. How often? Day by day. You can have a day-by-day -day renewal. And in Ephesians 3.16, we're told that Everything is about our heart. We're to give God everything from our heart. God wants to do a work in your heart today. Will you let him? That's the question. It is in your heart that God wants to do a work, a work of grace, a work of renewal, a work of freedom, a work of strength. Don't hold back. Now you might say, well, in the Bible, was there anybody who really loved God with all their heart? If that's what God requires, did anybody really do it? And we're going to see at the end of this message a woman that I think did do it. But I think what we, what we find in life is that we don't do it consistently enough. Amen? We tend to close off our heart to God. We don't often say, Lord, search my heart. Uh, do you ever, I have times like this all the time. I, I sometimes say, Lord, would you change my heart? Sometimes I look inside and I don't like what I see. You know, sometimes my heart is not celebratory as, as it should be or thankful as it should be or open as it should be. And we all deal with this. But in the Old Testament, God said he had found a man after his own heart. That man was David. 
That, he was a man after God's own heart, so it tells me that it's possible to have a heart after God, but it seems to be rather rare. And of course, David is compared with Saul, who wouldn't do it God's way. In Titus 1.7, it says, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He's not to be self-willed, that is, he is to be God-willed. You can write down Titus 1.7. And there are many places in the Bible that talk about the heart. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts or heart is completely his. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will do what? He will direct your paths. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues or the springs of life. Ephesians 5.19 says, We are to make melody with our hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 6.6 6 says, We are to do the will of God from the heart. Jesus said, Your heart is the most important thing. He said, You should store up treasures in heaven, because uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a person or defile the man. This is how God wants us to love him. He doesn't want to show. He doesn't want religious, uh, you know, you show up at the right place, you don't do this, you do that. He doesn't want just things to be done for appearance sake. He wants you to love him from his heart, or from your heart. Now let's pick up the account. This is the heart of Christ, Mark 12. We'll look at verses 35 through 44. Mark 12, 35. And Jesus answering began to say, now he had been hit with these questions, and he now had a question of his own. It was really an answer, but he's, he's saying, in essence, if you want to debate, here you go. As he taught in the temple, he said this, these words. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now this is what the scribes taught. They taught that the Christ or the Messiah, the coming uh, savior or conqueror would be a, from the lineage of David. Now how long before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem did David live? About a thousand years before. And Jesus was being lauded as the son of David. Or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were, they were calling him the son of David. And the religious leaders didn't like the implication of what was being said. And Jesus said, well, this is what you teach. You say that the Christ is the son of David. Look, up, look at the follow-up to this because it brings clarity. Jesus says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is about to quote Psalm 110, I want you to notice, students of the Bible, that Jesus said David wrote Psalm 110 by the Holy Spirit. This is an example of what's called uh, inspiration of the Bible. The Bible came through human authors, but it was the product of the Holy Spirit. This is what 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21 tell us. No prophecy of Scripture ever came as an act of human will, but men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit. This is the process of what's called Bible inspiration. People say, well, the Bible's a human book. It was written by human authors. We're reading a book called Mark. Doesn't that mean Mark wrote the book? Yeah, Mark was the instrument, if you will, but the ultimate scripture was breathed out by God. In fact, it was a product of the Holy Spirit. And David himself, verse 36, spoke uh, in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. And those are the words of Jesus, by the way. Jesus believes that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here's what David wrote. He said, the Lord, David writing Psalm 110 is the, the reference. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Now David's writing a psalm 1,000 years before Jesus is born, and he's almost like, it's almost like he's uh, a witness to a conversation between two persons. Notice the Lord, the first Lord there in Hebrew is Yahweh, if you're interested. You spell it uh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. And the second reference there to Lord is Adonai. 
So you have the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now there's a conversation going on a thousand years before Jesus is ever born in Bethlehem between two persons or personalities that are called Lord. And you, you think, well, does the Bible teach that God is triune? Here's an example in the Old Testament where it, where it does. Just earlier, we heard Jesus quote the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet you have a conversation between two personalities or call them centers of consciousness that are having a conversation and they're not the same, but they're both called Lord. Yahweh is the name of God. Adonai is a way to say the first judge. When you call Jesus your Lord, it literally means the first judge, Adonai. And here's what it means. It means everything in my life, I will run by him first to make the judgment. When you call him Lord, that's what you're saying. Lord, do you want me to do this? Lord, do you want me to do that? You lay your life before him as the first judge. That's Adonai. And so David is experiencing this conversation. And David, inspired by the Spirit, says the Lord, Yahweh, or if you want, the Father, said something to Adonai. And he said, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. What's ironic is that the very religious leadership had become Jesus' enemies. Jesus reaches back to the Old Testament, and now he's got his own question, and this is at least the second stumper that he's brought to them. Remember earlier, he had asked them if John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven or man, and they huddled up. Hold on a second, we need a sidebar. Oh, if we say this, if we say that, right? They come out of the huddle, ready, break, we don't know. And Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's his second stumper. He reaches back to the Old Testament and he says, uh, well, then how is it that David calls this one Lord? Now stick with me. You're going to need your thinking cap for a second. But here's how it works. They all said that the Messiah would be the human descendant of David. Think, think of a descendant. If the world goes on for another thousand years, Think of a descendant from your family that would be born a thousand years from today. That would be a great, 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 great grandson of yours, right? Couldn't do enough greats in there. They would be your lineage. But David called this future grandson, way off in the distance from David's time, he called him Lord. Why would David do that? David was the great king of Israel a man after God's own heart, ruled the nation well. He had his blunder, but he ruled the nation very well. Why would David call a future grandson his Lord? And that's the question that he puts to the religious leader, leaders. And by the way, there's no record that they ever answer the question. I think they just went, ah, 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 ah. And and here's another thing to take note of. Jesus has just told a parable of the vine growers and he said that when the vine growers saw the sun come, they said, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And by that story, he was making it clear that they know who he is. They know he's the Christ. And now he's thrown it back at them and said, look, if you know who I am, how is it that you are plotting in your heart you're about to kill God in human flesh. Now, you can't kill God in his very essence, but Jesus was going to die as the descendant of David, and they were plotting his death at the same time they knew who he was. David himself calls him Lord. Look at verse 37. So in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. I think this is kind of like they watched the religious leaders squirm a little bit. And they were like, <laughs> he got him again. I, I thought I was just going to come to the temple and make an offering and give a little bit of money. And man, you, oh, what Jesus does to these religious leaders is awesome. He threw this out again. And they were just, I don't know. See, what this is teaching is that Jesus is both human and divine. This is what's called the dual nature of the Son. Jesus has always been God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 goes into saying, all things were made through Him and by Him. Here's a way you could put it. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus was there before the beginning began. Because then the rest of the verses go on to call him the creator. If you're there before the beginning began, then you must be the beginner. Amen? I know. It's a little heavy. Did you have your donut? You, everybody okay? <laughs> See, this is talking about the eternality of Christ. Christ is both human and divine. And when he became that baby in Bethlehem, he did not stop being God. God can't stop being God. God doesn't go on a vacation. I don't want to be God for a while. It doesn't work that way. God is always God, but he took on the additional nature of humanity. And here's what Jesus is appealing to. He's saying, look, you guys say Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. You watch David call the Messiah Lord. You watch a distinction between one who's called Yahweh and Lord, and yet here I am. What do you say about that? What's your answer? And of course, the one who's asking them is the one who is the very Christ. And many times in his earthly ministry, people were saying, could this be the Christ? And the woman at the well said, when, when the Messiah comes, he, he will, he'll point out all these things to us, paraphrase. And Jesus said, I who stand before you am he. Jesus Christ is Messiah, God in human flesh. And in the last week of his earthly life, he was showing those who were his enemies and decided to be his enemies who he truly was. Now, if you go to, the, go to the actual psalm, go to Psalm 110 for a second. Let me just show it to you. It's only seven verses. It's the most quoted psalm in the uh, New Testament. It may be even the most quoted scripture that's uh, quoted in the New Testament. It's a psalm of David. Look at Psalm 110. The psalms are a great place to be as you do your devotional life. And here's what it says. Written 1,000 years before Jesus was born, about 1,000 B.C., the Lord, Psalm 110, verse 1, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies, Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, that could speak of the church or the saints, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. It could speak of offspring there. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking of this one who is called Lord, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I brought up Melchizedek in first service and some people say Melchizedek who? But Melchizedek is brought up a few times in scripture, namely I think three times he comes up. He's there in Genesis 14. He's there in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and he's mentioned in Psalm 110. Who is this mysterious Melchizedek? Well, here's what we know from Genesis 14. Abram fought a battle with some kings, and Lot was taken as a prisoner of war. And he wanted to go rescue his nephew, so Abraham got an army together, and he was victorious over these kings. And when he was on his way back, the king of Sodom met him. Met him. The king of Sodom is almost like a, a type of Satan in the Old Testament. And he came up and he was kind of negotiating with Abram. And in the midst of that negotiation, another one came up and his name was Melchizedek and he's identified as the king of Salem or the king of peace. And he came up and offered a couple things to Abram. He offered him bread and wine, interestingly enough. And there was an interchange between the, this Melchizedek, this king of Salem, and Abram gave him a tenth of the spoils. This, this particular character is picked up in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Some people believe he's a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Some people think that he's a type, like a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. There's, there's good scholars on both sides. But here's, here's what it's bringing up. It's saying that Jesus is this one at the right hand of the Father, if you will, and he's got a priesthood, and his priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. Just to make it simple, it's not a, a Levitical order. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. What tribe was he from? Judah. And Judah was not to have the priesthood. But Jesus had a, has a unique priesthood. It's a forever priesthood. In fact, right now, Brothers and sisters, he's at the right hand of the Father. In the book of Hebrews, as it lays out his high priestly ministry, says, he ever lives to intercede, guess for who? 
for you. He's fighting the battle, if you will, for you. It, it appears he prays in heaven for you. He's there as your helper. He's pictured in Hebrews 4 at, at a throne of grace that you might find mercy and help in your time of need. I was visiting a church member at the hospital last night and we were talking a little bit about the Lord and you know how there's always that curtain with the mystery patient next door. You don't really know who that person is but there's that curtain there. And anyway, uh, we are talking about the Lord and this, this male nurse walked up and said, you can come to the throne of grace, man, boldly. And I'm like, Amen. Have you ever noticed there's Christians everywhere? Even when you feel alone in the hospital, you never know the mystery patient behind the curtain who might be listening. It's pretty awesome. But anyway, I digress. The Lord, look at verse 5, Psalm 110, is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Uh, therefore, he will lift up his head. Now this incredible picture, Jesus has reached back here for a reason because this psalm is making it clear that Jesus is divine. He's come down from heaven to save us. Go all the way to the book of Hebrews. Just want to show you one more passage all the way towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 1. This is some incredible stuff and I'd like to spend, I could spend hours teaching on this, but for the sake of time, let's just move to verse 5 of Hebrews 1 where it's picking up this idea of the exaltation of Jesus as he's compared to angels and to Moses and so forth. Hebrews 1 verse 5 is what you want. After the writer tells about Jesus coming in, he's the God's final word, Hebrews 1, 2. He, verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the subject, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, Hebrews 1, 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is what the Psalm 110 is teaching. He sat down at that position of glory and privilege and honor. Having become as much better than the angels, Hebrews 1, 4, as he has inherited a, a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels, verse 5, did he, God the Father, ever say, Thou art my son? You can write in your Bible, to none. God never said that to an angel. You are my son. Notice, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Look, brothers and sisters, here's, here's it very simple. The father is calling upon all the angels to worship the son, Jesus Christ. Now, God, we know he has, he, has a, he has a dim view on many things. One thing he has a dim view about is anybody else getting worship except for him. Yet in the heavenly councils, if you will, he is commanding angels to worship the Son. What does that tell you about Jesus' nature? What does that tell you about his identity? He must be God. God the Father is not going to command angels to worship anyone except one who is God. And some of you are saying, oh, Pastor Michael, my head hurts. This is that Trinity stuff, right? Yeah, here's how it works. The Bible teaches it. And when you begin to look at the scriptures, you can see that the Bible teaches one God and yet three personalities that are all called God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We got a question on the Bible Answer Show this week. Joe Kelly put it well. Here's the way to think about the triune God. He's one what and three who's. One what and three who's. One God by nature or essence, but three personalities, three centers of consciousness, all are God and all are distinct from one another. For example, at the baptism of Jesus, when he is coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit is descending in the form of a dove, the heavens open, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Scholars like to say you have a subject-object distinction between the persons of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. They are distinct and yet they are one. Jesus was not in the Jordan River throwing his voice up to the heavens. He was not being a ventriloquist. Uh, not throwing his voice. 
There's actually a distinction between the persons of the Godhead, yet they are one in essence. You say, Pastor Michael, how do you, could you put it up on a chalkboard? Nope. Because any illustration I would try to use for you to grasp that, humanly speaking, would break apart because we're talking about the nature of God. People say, well, if I can't understand it, I'm not going to believe it. Really? Can you understand in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Spoke them into existence? Do you have the mechanics of that one? Well, no. I don't even know how my car starts in the morning, frankly. (laughs) But it does. There's other people in the room who know how it works. Here's the point. You don't have to completely be able to comprehend it. You can apprehend it because it's what the Bible teaches and it's telling you that God in many ways is unfathomable. When we see him, what are we going to see? You know, John describes God as refracted colors in Revelation 4 and 5 and this incredible scene of this throne and angels falling down and 24 elders. And yet we see a lamb there. And how will we see him? We're apparently going to see the wounds in his hands and his side. We're going to experience his humanity. What we believe is that he's going to be human forever. He's forever the God-man. Isn't that amazing? In, in the future ahead of us, we're going to spend time with our Savior and see his eyes and see the scars and hear his voice and see his face. That's what the Bible's telling us. And so this, this is the incredible nature of who Jesus is. Look at verse 7. And of the angels, he's going back between the Son and the angels, verse 7, Hebrews 1. He says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father, in Hebrews 1.8, calls the Son God. Of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. His throne will never end. That's from uh, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. And, continuing with the discussion about the Son, thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth. Jesus is the creator. And the heavens are the work, uh, works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed, but thou art the same. How long? Thy years will not come to an end. Hebrews 13.8 is something you should write in your Bible there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. You know, people often downplay the power of who Jesus Christ is. But he is declared to be the Son of God by power, by virtue of the resurrection. Another uh, verse that you'd want to look at is Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, showing both his human and divine nature. Here we have God's portrait of Jesus Christ. We have seen him in the preeminent offices of king and high priest and so forth. A man who says, I'm reading from an author now, that Jesus Christ is anything less than this, God in human flesh, Almighty God, makes God out to be a liar. God says that his son is preeminent in all things. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? It means everything because I call Jesus my Savior and my Lord. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Everything that is his, he says, is mine. This is what it means to know the heart of Christ in terms of his identity. That's the first part of the sermon. Second part of the sermon, we're going to see the heart of hypocrisy. This is verses 38 through 40 back in Mark 12. Mark 12, 38 and 40. And I just want to say a word about what Jesus says next. He's about to give a warning. And people often think that when you warn other people, you're being unloving. Let me just correct that. Biblical love does not mean that you don't warn people and even tell people that what they're doing is wrong. That's not, it's not biblical love when you just say to everybody, well, you're okay and I'm okay and who knows? No, that's not love. Love is a person who's willing to speak the truth and also overlook faults and little idiosyncrasies that we all have. But here is incarnate love and notice the next thing he does. 
This is Mark 12, 38. He's in the temple area and he says, in his teaching, Jesus was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like, uh, Luke's gospel says, they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Second section, the heart of hypocrisy. Jesus was able to see through people. And he said, beware, I warn you, watch out for the scribes. They love to walk around in long robes. Now when we read some uh, ancient writings on this, it says that the, the, the scribe was easy to see. He wore a white long robe and it was required of anybody in the marketplace to stop what they were doing to greet the scribe that was coming through. So if you were, you know, maybe you were looking for a good avocado or an apple and you were assessing things and the rabbi comes by, you have to stop what you're doing. And you have to say, oh, rabbi, wonderful to see you today. And he'd walk by in his robe and say, nice to see you as well, poor layperson. <laughs> you may kiss my ring. And this is what would happen in the marketplace. Everybody had to stop. It was required except if you were working on a building or you were involved in a project because they were concerned that a brick might fall on your head. But that's just a joke. But anyway, but that was it. Otherwise, you had to stop what you were doing. So when you came into a room, you commanded that everybody stop and acknowledge you. Now let me ask you, is that the heart of Christ? Christ said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So, this is not any uh, self-promotion here, but I park across the street on the other side of river. I do that so that there will be plenty of parking spaces for the people who come here. Some people have expressed concern about that because Pastor Michael has to cross the street. <laughs> Apparently that concerns some people, and I understand why. <laughs> I've been hit by a car in the past, and we won't go there, Mother. But anyway, it explains a lot, doesn't it? But uh, so... But I, I park over there because I don't want to give the impression that there should be a parking space for Pastor Michael. Okay, that, no, that's Pastor Michael's parking space. We, we don't go there. That's where he parks, you know, his car. No, 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 no. We're supposed to be servants, you guys. Amen? That's, that's the way that God has asked us to be in terms of our Christian life. But these guys... And by the way, I don't mind when you guys bless me with, I just want to round this out by saying, I don't mind when you bless me with Snickers bars and oatmeal cookies and <laughs> maple bars. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Just Anyway. But they want the chief seats, the places of honor. But notice what they do. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses, and for appearance's sake, they offer long prayers. And then it says, and this is quite interesting, these will receive greater condemnation. If you ever wondered, are there levels of reward in heaven and levels of punishment in hell? Yes. These will receive greater condemnation because too much is given, much more is required. Here's what they used to do. These scribes and religious leaders would come across a widow who was extremely vulnerable. The widow would entrust the keeping of the estate in the hands of the scribe. He was supposed to walk her through loss and if she didn't have protection. And the scribes would often manipulate the widow and they would get her to sign over her property to the scribe. And Jesus said, I know what you're doing. And if some talking head comes on a screen and says to people, oh, the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to sign over your social security check to my ministry and God will bless you. I would just say to that person, you ought to be very careful. Because if you're ripping people off, for the sake of financial gain, and you're making false promises that you cannot back up, be careful. The Lord sees through hypocrisy. And this is the final section. We'll move through it quickly. This is the heart of Christ seen in a widow. And he sat down, Jesus did, verse 41, opposite the treasury. This is the area of what's called the court of the women. And he began observing. The Greek word for observing is where we get our English word theater. He sat down and began to people watch, is how we might put it. And he be began to observe how the multitude were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. So here's how it looked. It's Passover season. The place is just bulging with people. And we find from the Jewish writings that they had in the court of the women 13, uh, 
trumpet-shaped receptacles for offerings. And each of them applied to different things. So you can give wood for the temple sacrifice, or you could give to the free will offering, or this or that. And people would come, and, they, and there was coins back in the day, not bills. And so if you had a large sum of coins, you'd throw it in the trumpet receptacle, and it'd go like this. And then you look at your buddies and go, oh, yeah. See how much I gave today. And it was kind of like sounding the trumpet. And when the offering time comes up, you know, we all, we all want to be good, uh, benevolent givers, but you don't really like when someone else is watching your giving, do you? Do you fold your check over or kind of hide what you're sliding in the offering bag? No, try not to look at this right now, please. Right? Well, they were doing it to impress their friends. They were throwing in the change and then going, yeah, I gave to God. Now, it doesn't mean that big gifts from wealthy people were not appreciated, but Jesus was watching the theater that was going on. See, God was there that day. Have you ever wondered how you might give or how you might approach things differently if you knew God was there? If, if the offering bag came by and Jesus was sitting next to you, would you change the amount that you give? Hold on a minute. Let me sketch that out. I'm gonna... I don't know. How would we live life differently if we knew that Jesus was right there? But he is. Isn't he? Doesn't he live in our hearts? So Jesus was watching the amounts, the attitude, and then he saw a poor widow, 42, and she came up and put in two small copper coins. These are called lepta to the Jews, which amount for the Roman readers, Mark says, they amount to a cent, basically a penny. I was joking with the first service, and I said, you know, how many of you will stop and pick up a penny on the ground? Raise up your hand. Boy, you're desperate people. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, a penny is really not worth much. Any, but sometimes people are like, oh, it's a lucky penny. So they pick it up. I have come to a point in life where I assess more profoundly what I'm going to bend over and pick up. <laughs> now, this is sad. I must confess. I didn't used to think it through. I just used to pick stuff up. You know what I'm saying? Some of, some of the people know exactly what I'm saying. But now I kind of, I make an assessment. Like, is it worth it to pick that thing up? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, what she gave amounted to about a cent, and the coins that she gave were not like thick coin. They were little kind of frail coins. And when she put them in, it probably made no sound. Can you imagine 13 trumpet uh, you know, shaped receptacles and people are dumping in large monies and this little widow walks up in her widow clothing, poor outcast, and she drops in two coins that will make no noise whatsoever. Do you think anybody saw her? Do you think anybody was paying attention? Do you know when we move into Mark 13 and we look at verse 1, the disciples want to point out the buildings of the temple. And so they say, Lord, look at the magnificent buildings, the stones. And Jesus says to them, these stones are going down, man. You see, what you think is so important and what impresses you often means very little to God. Do you know what impressed Jesus in the temple courts that day? It wasn't the buildings. It wasn't the impressive sums of money being put into the coffers by the rich. It was a woman that I almost, I almost ventured to bet nobody else even gave a thought to her. I don't even know think anybody cared it, it becomes clear in this account that not even the uh, disciples are paying attention look at verse 43 he called his disciples to him and he said to them truly I say to you this poor widow look at her boys this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury and his language may mean all of them combined You know, sometimes I know when you guys are living your life like me, I wonder, does God see what I do? What I often feel like is such a weak offering. Sometimes I say, Lord, did that even matter? Do you see the little things that some of us do? We think, you know, some of you, you have very little to give. So the offering time almost becomes an embarrassment to you. And some of you can't give right now. And I would just say to you, don't worry about that. Don't worry about it. But Look at, heaven assesses things much differently than we do. The person that most impressed Jesus that day would be a person that most of us 
would look past and not even pay attention to. She was a poor widow, and Jesus said she gave everything that she had. She gave it all. What an incredible connection Jesus could make with her, for he was about to give everything on the cross. He was about to lay down his life. He was about to become poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that you might become rich. Through his poverty, you might become rich. He did this for your sake. Jesus said, for they all put, out, put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. There's no record in this account that she ever knew Jesus saw her. There's no record of an interchange between the two. I don't even know if she knew. Do you remember when Jacob was in Bethel and he had the dream about Jacob's ladder and God appeared to him and spoke to him and he said, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Do you know that God is in a lot of places that you don't know? Because you may not have heard from him directly. You may not hear, but he sees. You may not always sense it, but he knows. And he saw her. And he said she gave everything. She didn't hold one thing back. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that she becomes a living illustration of the greatest commandment? to give everything that you are to God. It's not just about your money. It's really about your heart. There's a great commentator of old. He's from the early 18th century. His name is J.A. Bangle, and he beautifully wrote of the poor widow that she gave to, one of which the widow might have retained, but she gave everything. She was silently saying to God, I love you. Here's my heart and my life. It's not much but it's all that I have. And God was watching her on that day, and he was pleased. And she had a reward from God. I think she's enjoying it right now. Perhaps it is also still ahead of her. She gave everything she could. And here we are, you know, we, how do we measure our lives? Sometimes we think, oh, if I've gotten to the 10% thing, I've come a long way, baby. How many of you can relate to that? <laughs> Started at 5%. Okay, maybe I'll give 10%. You know what 10% really means? It means nine for me and one for you, God. Did you hear that math? Nine for me and one for you. And when we started at 5%, it was nine and a half for me and a half for God. And then we get to 10% and we think, oh, I'm doing good now. I give 10%, right? I'm not just talking about money. I hope you all understand what I'm saying. And we say, now it's one for God and nine for me. I'm doing good now, right? And God says, wait a minute, time out. That's not, your, your Christian life's not about that. Your Christian life is, I want all of you. You open up your hands to me, and you open up your heart to me, and I'll put in to your life and take out of your life as I will. You're gonna call me Lord? Then open up your life. And it's so scary, isn't it? What do you mean, open up? I've just come to terms with 10%. I've just come to terms with weekly church attendance. I used to come twice a month. Well, first it was Easter and Christmas. And now (laughs) we're going places, baby. Right? And we think, yeah, and, and, and I think God says that's great. But that's not all. What I really want is all of you. There's an old hymn. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out. Here's what it says. It says, take my life and let me be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. 
Take my love, my Lord. I pour it at thy feet, its treasure store. Take myself, and I will ever and I will be ever only all for thee. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this section of scripture that speaks to the core of who we are. We want to offer our hearts as we fast approach now the Thanksgiving and Christmas season, and it's a time when we can have everything get into a, a rush, Lord, and we can, we can pass by some very precious moments. Moments with a family and Thanksgiving, moments of Christmas with children and grandchildren and extended family, and for some, Lord, some loss. Some are dealing with an empty chair, and they're going to have to move on, and, and I pray that they'll be able to move forward by your grace. They, you know, we can have easy answers to loss, Lord. They're never going to completely get over it, but Lord, I pray for some who have gone through that loss that they can at least press forward in your grace. And, and I'm just asking for your mercy to flood the hearts of the precious people that are here. There's so many wonderful servants. So many have opened up their hearts and lives to you. And I pray you'd bless them and meet them where they are. You know every heart, Lord. You know what people need right now. Would you encourage and strengthen faith? Would you encourage that person who feels alone and maybe like you don't see what they do, but you do? May you strengthen that person who maybe has been a phony, They've been sitting in church for years, but they've never really had an experience with the Holy Spirit. Would you change them today? Would you help the heart that's tired and poured out and ready to give up? Would you minister your grace to this room, Lord? And if you've not met Jesus, now's the time. It's something like this, Jesus saved me. I would encourage you to pray it right now. Jesus saved me and changed me. I believe you are God. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose to defeat death. I believe in your current ministry as my high priest and I just want to live for you, Lord, and trust you with all that I am. So Father, just help those people that are opening up their hearts and bless each precious soul, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?